Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and each week on this podcast, I talk to some of the most fascinating people on the planet in all areas of life, from mindset to fitness to spirituality, and of course, business. Look, I believe you deserve success in all the areas of your life, not only business. But before we get into today's show, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard experience. This year, we're going to be going to Mykonos and Marrakesh. In these experiences, I have hand-selected a group of high-performing business people who are seeking more balance, connection, and they want to celebrate their wins as a reward for the hard work that they put in. If you want someone to curate once-in-a-lifetime experiences and force you to play more, rush over to workhardplayhardexperience.com. Fill out an application so we can jump on a discovery call to see if this is a good fit for you. And remember, excuses are over. It's time to live. So 180 feet per second, two-tenths of a second equates to 56 feet. 56 feet is the difference between first and sixth at the Daytona 500. The difference in money is $1.1 million. So $1.1 million is riding on two-tenths of a second. You know, companies want their team to operate like a pit crew. And what they think that is, is, you know, implementing a process or a system. And it's not. You know, operating like a pit crew is elevating people over process. You know, like I said, inspiring human brilliance. Let's find the things that are different about each other. And instead of underscoring them and letting them divide us, Let's be curious about them and bring us together. Together, 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 together. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. And today on the show is Sean Pete. Sean played hockey for Dartmouth College and then went on to play eight years of pro hockey and then decided to completely try something new and went on to become a jackman in a top-level NASCAR pit crew. I mean, it sounds crazy, but when you hear his story, you'll see how it effortlessly flowed from one part of his life into the next part of his life. He's also the co-founder of Deck Leadership and co-authored a book called 12 Second Culture. So the reason why I wanted to have him on the show is to show you how we don't have to do one thing for our whole life and how you can use the lessons that he learned from hockey and NASCAR to accelerate, pun intended, your own life. You're gonna love this interview, so please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Sean Pete. Sean, welcome to the show. Man, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here, Rob, thank you. You know what, nobody is more happy than me because I get to talk about two things I know zero about, which is hockey, and NASCAR. <laughs> so we're, we're going to talk about both of those things. And uh, your story is so interesting to me. And I, I'd like to start by rewinding the clock back a bit and heading back to Vancouver Island. How would you describe what growing up there was like? And maybe you could contrast that to how different it may be from the United States. Uh, growing up on the you know the west coast of Vancouver Island, you know I grew up in a logging town, a very blue collar people and uh, you know very tight knit families. Uh, came from two really wonderful parents, and uh, it was uh, it was a great childhood. You know, growing up play hockey uh, was just you know, something you do as a Canadian, and um, it was very interesting, right? You don't uh, you know Vancouver Island is very obviously isolated. It's it's out in the Pacific Ocean by itself, so. You were kind of uh, shielded from a lot of the things that um, some of the bigger world things that you know that are going on currently. And uh, you know, my first foray into the United States was my recruiting trip down to Dartmouth, and um, it was eye opening. You know, again, taken from this little you know microcosm of a town and put onto the a, a much bigger stage and coming to the United States. It would, I think the biggest difference was that up there growing up, you're just a Canadian. 
right? Like it doesn't matter your political affiliation, your religious affiliation. It's just, you know, it's Joe from Canada or Karen from Canada. And um, hmm. we didn't use our differences to, you know, we didn't underscore our differences. You know, we, we actually found interest in them. And it, I think that was one of the biggest things I saw that really kind of opened my eyes when I came down here. That's really interesting. So, you know, as a Canadian, you're sort of collectively viewing yourself as a Canadian, but as an American, we sort of identify with who we identify with, but it's not necessarily as a global, I'm an American. It's like a, it's a different sort of thing. And once you said that, you know, I'm Joe from Canada. Um, I, 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 I know exactly who Joe from Canada is. I understand <laughs> it. So, you know, awesome. So being from Canada, you grew up, as you mentioned, around ice hockey. And because of your dad's garage, you grew up around cars. In what ways did that particular environment shape the course of your life, do you think? Well, I mean, it certainly taught me work ethic. You know, you grew up in a garage, you know, it's a lot different than growing up, you know, under a banker or a lawyer or a doctor. So, you know, if you, if you wanted to get something done, you got your hands dirty. And, uh, you know, so certainly work ethic was a big thing that I learned in the garage. But, you know, it was one of those things, you know, my dad is a, you know, pretty rough and tumble guy, but, you know, he just exuded kindness, right? So you have this guy that, you know, could, could be intimidating. But, you know, I remember growing up and getting letters sent to the house of, you know, from motorists that were stranded. My dad stopped to help them with their car or change their tires and, and all that stuff. And, and, um, the first time I ever heard walk softly, but carry a big stick, I was like, well, that's, you know, that's my dad. And that's kind of, kind of what I've walked through life with is, um, it's one thing to portray a certain image, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you know, kindness wins. And, uh, the, the, the opportunity in the garage obviously led me to my opportunity in NASCAR, which is nothing I ever thought that I would entertain, but 16 years later, here we are. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. After you graduated high school, you mentioned earlier that you uh, you ultimately wound up coming to the U.S. and it was on a hockey scholarship to Dartmouth. I'd like to talk about what your training looked like back then. In other words, what does that type of training and sacrifice look like to actually get a hockey scholarship to an Ivy League school like Dartmouth? So Rob, I was really... I feel like looking back, I, I gamed the system. So basically, 16-year-old kid, really mediocre hockey player, like never was, you know, a star of any of the tournaments, never was any on any of the select teams. I was always kind of the last player on the team. But the one thing where I what I didn't have in talent, I made up in work ethic. And where that served me well was I knew that when the US coaches came to the West Coast to scout the West Coast, they came before their college hockey season started. So if I could have a fast start. I had a shot at being being noticed. So the year I was uh, received my scholarship, I was traded to a team. And like I said, I grew up pretty tough boxing. And, and I was put on this team and I was put with two of the best players in Canada. And there were these two French players and they were so outstanding. I basically had to skate with them and make sure no one put their hands on them. But in doing that, these guys were so good in the first 11 games you know, I had all sorts of points and all sorts of assists and all sorts of penalty minutes. And I was a really good look for the scouts. So that work ethic allowed me to skate with these two guys. And, you know, like I said, 16 games in, I was really attractive to the scouts and um, it just kind of went from there. But it was, it was born of a relentless pursuit of something that I was super passionate about. And, and I wasn't going to allow anything to get my way, not, not girlfriends at the time, not Friday night movies, not, nothing, not failure. You know, I did, you know, when, I think when you're super passionate about something, you know, the bumps along the road show themselves as something different when you, you know, you're laser focused. Yes. Like everything else in life though, you know, we are in things for, you know, a reason, a season or a lifetime. And you decided to go pro in hockey and you wound up playing for seven uh, seasons, but there was a moment where you were shipped to Greensboro, North Carolina. Can you explain, maybe you could talk about the decision that uh, let you, that led to you going through that. And in hindsight today, how do you view that situation that happened to you in, Green, in uh, Greensboro? 
Well, you know, I wish I could say that Greensboro was a decision, but uh, unfortunately it was a result. So I was in the American League uh, with the Pittsburgh Penguins top affiliate in Wilkes-Barre. And I had made the opening day roster after finishing the season with them the previous year. And we were two days away from the home opener. And after practice, all the guys went for lunch and we were just sitting there. And you know how they run the ticker underneath ESPN? And it, you know, kind of keeps you updated of the transactions. Well, we're all sitting there eating lunch and I'm the only undrafted player in Wilkes-Barre at the time. And I was a defenseman and we're sitting there eating lunch. And the ticker says the Pittsburgh Penguins just trade for Doug Wilson and Ethan Moreau from the Florida Panthers, both defensemen. And like, it went silent at the table because everyone knew that I was on my way out. So I actually went to the rink the next morning, beat coach there, packed my bags. And when he walked in, he's like, yeah, I'm really sorry, kid. And I, I had made it there just because he loved the way I worked. And um, it was just one of those things. So I was sent to Greensboro. So I get down there. It's opening night. And a couple things come together. I'm not super happy about the demotion. We're, uh, we're playing a team. And, I, I, and it has a guy that I played college against for four years. And in college, there's no fighting. There's, no, there's none of that. And... Towards the end of the second period, this guy takes his cheap shot and our coach is losing his mind and he's yelling at all of us. And he's like, who's going to solve this? So I said, I'll solve it. So I jumped over the boards and I line up with this guy. And when the puck drops, we start fighting. Well, a whole big line brawl breaks out. And I have this guy on the ice and there's gentlemen's rules that govern fighting in hockey. So when I get on top, when I get him to the ice, I stop hitting him. But I look over my shoulder and they have a heavyweight on their team who actually end up fighting for the Montreal Canadiens. And he's just pounding away at one of our guys. So I leave the guy that I'm with and I go up and I kind of rescue my buddy. I, you know, I sucker the guy, which is not one of my prouder moments. And the guy who's originally fighting ends up tackling me to the ground, but he ends up on the bottom. And, and Rob, you know, when you fire up a, a lawnmower that's been in the shed all winter, it, it yep. felt like that. I, I think I probably hit him 60 times and he uh, was being escorted off the ice, looked over my shoulder. There was a guy challenging our bench. So I escaped the officials, you know, got my, all my gear off and the refs intervened. And, and I dragged my thumb across my throat and said, you know, cause we were playing him the next night. So when I, I didn't realize I was in trouble until as I was skating off, our team idiot had already been kicked out of the game. And I stepped off the ice and he looked at me and he's like, man, you are in huge trouble. And sure enough, um, I was suspended six games for starting it, six games uh, for the second altercation and six games for a throat, throat slashing gesture. And it's considered the worst brawl in the history of the East Coast League. And, um, uh, and it's a record suspension. I was suspended for a quarter of the season, which is also a record and not one that my parents are super proud of. But uh, it was one of those things where I was coming to the defense of a, a teammate and it spiraled out of control. The unintended consequence of that was that I met a person in the stands when I was suspended. And that person had a husband involved with NASCAR. You know, And after a little bit of talking, she was like, well, when your dad comes down, we'll take you on a tour of one of the race shops. And sure enough, my dad comes down we go on a tour of one of these race shops and it was back before uh, when, when mechanics were pitting these race cars and practice wasn't going well. So the crew chief's like, yeah, Hey, get the hockey player in here. And I was dressed in like jeans and you know, like not nothing athletic. And uh, I was, I was like, no, no, I'm good. And he, he was insistent. So I went and because I had some athleticism, I was almost as fast as the guy that had knew it for five years. So they were like, no, you, you need to do this. And I, you know, I didn't pay much attention to it. And then sure enough, a year later, I was full-time in NASCAR. How in the heck did you go from hockey to NASCAR? Right. So, so again, you know, we had that, that tryout story that, that kind of led to a start. You know, it's funny. I tell people I spent 26 years trying to get to the National Hockey League and I made it to NASCAR in six weeks. So what I did was I just I, I outworked everyone again. And, and it was interesting, Rob, when I got into NASCAR, it was when mechanics pitted the cars. So here we are, I'm in the middle of this multi-million dollar business and I'm on the athlete side of it. And I get to my first big race and all the guys are going out the night before getting absolutely obliterated. And I'm just like, how is this real? Like, how is this, how, you know what I mean? Cause it just, it wasn't hockey. It wasn't football. It wasn't, and there weren't these things in place that led people to better, you know, better performances. So I took advantage of that, made sure I was, you know, well-rested, prepared, you know, stronger, fitter, you know, more dialed in than everybody. And, and I made for a quick study and, you know, I literally went for six weeks, started with uh, the Keselowski family on the trucks and then just moved my way up to a cup car. And, um, 
and never looked back. And you know, what's funny is, you know, I thought I would do it for a year when, when I, you know, I was like, you know, I've always chased fun and laughter. And, uh, cause going to Dartmouth really kind of let me peek behind the curtain and dispel the myth of, of what I thought success and wealth was. And, and for me, I was going after these great experiences in life. And that was, that was 16 years later. And, and, you know, it's funny, you know, you bring the Dartmouth stuff up. One of the more laughable moments I've had is, is Dartmouth has an alumni magazine and in it, they have something akin to Sports Illustrated's faces in the crowd. So it's three pictures before, you know, in every magazine. And this one issue comes to the house. And the first picture is a, a Dartmouth uh, med student that has won a, a pretty prestigious prize in medicine. The second picture is a Dartmouth grad who wins Navy Fighter Pilot of the Year. And the third picture is me running around a running around a race car at a race in Kentucky. So it was, uh, it was funny because you have this huge juxtaposition of, you know, what people think is success. And, and here I am, it looks like, oh, Pete settled for NASCAR. But Rob, there's not a day that I look back where I don't think I've had more fun than just about anybody. Fun is highly underrated for sure. You were what they call, if I got it right, you were a jackman where you were uh, carrying a 35-pound jack that lifts a 3,500 pound car in a stroke. And the expectation is that you can do it in 1.2 seconds. That sounds crazy to me. Why did that appeal to you? It appealed to me because I mean, my, I'm 6'3", 225, and, and bigger guys kind of have two options. They can carry tires or they can jack the race car. And your jackman is kind of like your quarterback. You know, he initiates the, the the stop and he ends the stop when he drops it on the left side. And I've always been that adrenaline junkie type person, right? So like, if you think about what a jackman has to do, your picker guy is standing on the wall and he can't go until the car is one stall, one pit stall away from your position. So that car is traveling at 55 miles an hour. And so basically when it's 10 feet away, you jump in front of it. And you try to race across in front of it before it hits you. And then you turn around and you jack it up. But when you jack it up, there's 40 other race cars that are inches off your heels and your hands going 55 miles an hour. So, you know, people ask us what that's like. It's akin to going out to the interstate, putting your heels up to the white line and letting traffic rip by you. And if that doesn't unnerve you, then you're meant to be a jack man. And I just, I, I thought that was thrilling. And, um, it's thrilling until you you, know, you get your heels run over or you get put on the hood of someone's car, but it was um, it was a position I gravitated to early and and never looked back. Do you sort of view yourself as a bit of a uh, adrenaline junkie? Junkie, I do. I, I I've always looked for adventure. I've always I've had a, a, just a really good gift of always like you know searching, going after life. You know, not going after living, but going after life, putting myself in spots that scare the hell out of me. And uh, I have a disrespect for failure that allows me to go into those spots without the trepidation that I think a lot of people would, you know, that would hold a lot of people up. I got it. But then, you know, like everything else, that part of your life transitions. What led to the decision to end your career as a Jackman? Uh, and I think it was around 2013, and go into pit crew coaching? Well, it was it was a desire to see it done better. So just to give you a little bit of history of the sport, like NASCAR really exploded in the late 90s, early 2000s. And there, there never was pit crew coaches, right? Because it was just guys would wrench on the cars all day and then go pit the cars. But as the cars became more competitive on the track, there was a decided advantage to be won in the pits. And I was on the front side of athletes coming in. So what had happened is all these guys were coaches that, first of all, had never gone over the wall and done a pit stop. And second of all, had never been coaches. And so like they would be, you'd be on the wall, Rob, and they'd be like, okay, uh, do this stop and pretend like your daughter's life is on the line. Like they'd say that to you as the car's coming down. And, oh and yeah, NASCAR pit stops is big stakes, right? Like if you, we have two tire changers. And it's their job to hit five lug nuts in under a second. Okay, so that's two-tenths of a second per lug nut. So if you go ahead and blink your eyes, that's two-tenths of a second. Now, in our world, these cars are traveling 180 feet per second. So 180 feet per second, two-tenths of a second equates to 56 feet. 
56 feet is the difference between first and sixth at the Daytona 500. The difference in money is $1.1 million. So $1.1 million is riding on two tenths of a second. So it's huge stakes. And you have these guys that just weren't putting you in the best position to succeed. So, you know, I had a guy that I've spent my entire NASCAR career with. His name's Mike Metcalf, arguably one of the best human beings on this planet. We thought we could do it a better way. So we we decided that um, we would take on, you know, being a picker coach. And, uh, and that's the direction we took. We took a, a broken down system. It, it wasn't devoid of talent, Rob, but it was lazy and it was entitled and it was selfish. And we thought, okay, we can change this. And three years later, we won the, one of the mechanics wear awards for, for top pit crew. We become the only pit crew that's ever won our sports version of the Walter Payton award for the way our guys give back and, and, and participate in the community. And, you know, there was a, there's a sense of pride there that I, I, that is much more profound than I thought there would have been. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about tackling a new sport. When tackling a new sport like NASCAR, what are some questions or strategies or practices that you borrowed from hockey that can help, that helped you with NASCAR? That's a great question. So one of, like I said, just like I gamed the, the college hockey thing, when I first got to NASCAR, I really looked for the soft spots. I was like, how do I accelerate my training or my approach to it so that I can get in here quicker. And, and it goes back to like, one of the big things was preparation. You know, it'd be four stops and then the guys would go. You know, a lot of them didn't even work out. So I knew that, you know, if my fitness level was up, not only would it make me, you know, not only would I move better, but I would think better. And, you know, if I was in bed at nine o'clock, you know, six hours or eight hours before the race, I was putting myself in a better spot than all these guys that were out drinking. I thought that, you know, if I could hydrate my nutrition at the racetrack, if I took care of that, you know, when it came to go and I needed that, I would have that. So there was all these things that, that went into making you a successful hockey player that easily and instantly transitioned into NASCAR, but that other NASCAR people that I was competing against weren't doing. And it was really interesting because like I said, my hockey career, you know, I, I was average mediocre to bad and, and struggled and fought the whole time. To, to stay in the lineup. And, you know, because I implemented these systems, I found success early and, and performed at a high level right from the onset. Okay. Then you made a decision where, you know, you decided that you were going to train guys, or like we talked about earlier with coaching. And in the process of training guys, you have to teach five people how to change four tires in 12 seconds, where the difference in the competitive success is literally a fifth of a second. How do you get them that fast and be able to work together as a cohesive unit? So, so you're exactly right. So we, we are tasked with changing four tires in 12 seconds. And we laughingly refer to ourselves as the Department of Unrealistic Expectations because we're expected to do oh, that funny. every single time. And I think everyone has a certain part of unrealistic expectations in their life. And we actually will introduce ourselves like that. But, you know, it starts, Rob, honestly, by inspiring human brilliance, right? Like we operate on the verge of what's humanly possible. And I can't mandate that effort. I can only inspire it. So what we've done over the years is, you know, NASCAR pit stops in the 1960s were in excess of a minute and 30 seconds. And it took a, a great deal of, you know, of vertical thinking and invention to get them down. The fastest pit stop ever run was 9.97 seconds. If you would have told a guy in 1960 that that was going to be possible, he would have laughed at you. But what's gone on is, you know, besides the tooling is, you know, the way pit stops are choreographed and the way guys work together the athletes we've gone after. You know, I think one thing that would surprise a lot of your audience is if you look up the makeup of our teams over the time at our time at Ganassi, we have a linebacker from the Pittsburgh Steelers. We have a kid that um, led Clemson in tackles for two years. Uh, we have an Olympic swimmer. We have had two United States Navy SEALs. So the athletic pedigree and acumen of these guys coming in wasn't like myself, like I said, I was a, a decent athlete. When I got the kid from Clemson, he ran around the car the first day and I looked at the other coach and was like, I don't even know if I can coach that because the movement has become so dynamic. You're getting, instead of, you know, 
C and D athletes, you're starting to get A's and B's. And that's why you continue to see the times on these pit stops drop. And, you know, it's interesting. Our, our number one recruiting criteria at Chip Ganassi Racing is we put nothing above being a world-class human being. If you're that, I can turn you into a pit crew guy. If you think about it, the car comes to a stop every time. So it's not like a football field or a hockey rink where you're, you know, reading and reacting to an offense or a defense. It's about perfecting a certain skill. And if you have the work ethic and intestinal fortitude to go after it, we can turn you into that guy. Got it. Got it. Okay. Now, tell me about Deck. What is Deck? So Deck Leadership is a, a company I co-founded with Mike Metcalf, and it was born out of an opportunity to speak at the NFL Combine a couple of years ago. And um, what was interesting was, you know, Indianapolis is a racing town, and, you know, they needed a break from all the doctor speak, so they reached out to our race team. And so Mike and I were sent up to Indy, and what was interesting was it was, uh, you know, a, a three-day conference, and Mike and I get up on stage, and we, we do our talk, and what was surprising was when we were done, there was about 30, you know, doctors and trainers that stuck around to ask us questions, which we were kind of surprised by. Because I think in life, anything you do, you just think that's your work and that no one would be that interested in what we had to say about NASCAR. And then we're leaving the convention hall and we get stopped by this guy and, and he's like, fellas, I took more notes in your 30 minutes than I have the first two days of this conference. And we get into this really great talk about asymmetric movement patterns and at the end of the talk, I'm like, well, cool, man. Well, who are you with? And he says, well, I'm with the New England Patriots. And right there, Rob, it was like a light bulb going off. First of all, I should have been asking him questions. But secondly, I thought maybe we have something to give to the world. So we started getting, you know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of speak in, in corporate America these days about how, you know, companies want their team to operate like a pit crew. And what they think that is, is, you know, implementing a process or a system and it's not, you know, operating like a pit crew is elevating people over process. You know, like I said, inspiring human brilliance. And that's what we go to companies and do. Like we literally will take the race car to the parking lot of your business. We'll put the tires and guns and all the things in your hands and we'll teach you how to be a team. And, and what's interesting is so many people, you know, it's funny because the Trojan horse is NASCAR, right? So they just think there's, you know, these rednecks coming to talk to them from NASCAR. But there's so many lessons in NASCAR that parallel what are going on in these companies. So DEC stands for diversity, efficiency, culture, and kindness. And Mike and I, from our glimpse into corporate America, we believe that those are the four horsemen of corporate America that we need to do a better job of in order for our teams to operate like pit crews. Okay, got it. Now you came up with something called the 12 second culture and you created a book about it. What is that? So 12-second culture, so again, it lends itself to, to what we do. What makes a pit crew great? What allows, you know, speed is the new currency of business, right? We, we go to certain sandwich shops because we can get a sub sandwich in two minutes. We don't go there because it's delicious, right? You know, even, you know, it was something in the paper not long ago. It said it's, it's no longer big business versus small business. It's fast versus slow. So we teach companies how to operate like pit crews, how to operate efficiently. You know, and the number one thing that moves speed through an organization, Rob, is trust. But so many things that we do nowadays don't, don't build trust. You know, we, we have a misconception of leadership that leadership is a company car in an in a, in a office with a glass window in it. We challenge companies. We, we were just somewhere recently and um, we had this guy and he was great, and he, but he's really aspiring to get one of those C-level positions. And so I asked him, I said, well, what do you, what do you think it's going to take? Where you're at, what do you think it's going to take? And, you know, he told us all these things that were all these superficial things based around money. And I stopped him. I said, what, well, you want to be a CEO. What does the C and CEO stand for? And he said, it stands for chief. And I said, exactly. And how did a young Indian warrior ascend to the position of chief? And he looked at me and he said, well, I don't really know. And I said, a young Indian warrior starts out by only caring about the group right? His main focus is to make sure the group is clothed, is fed, and is protected. And all his actions go to the wholeness of the group to make sure that it's taken care of. And although he doesn't aspire to be chief, because of his selflessness, he ascends to the position of chief. 
Then I asked him, I said, what do you, what's the number one characteristic trait of a psychopath? It's profound lack of empathy. So what sounds more like what's going on in the corporate space right now by the people we lead, that are leading us, right? Are you the chief executive officer or are you the psychopath executive officer? If you want a C-level position, act like a chief, look out for the group, lead with kindness. Those are the things that we've got to get back to. Okay, got it. You know, you've you've also said uh, that America has this sort of preoccupation with being fast and wanting the need to be the best, but that philosophy may be killing us. Can you tell me more about what you mean by that? Well, I, the, th- the just the pace of things. You know, we cannot continue. I think the pace of things hurts us, Rob. Honestly, you know, we talk a lot to people about thinking vertically. You know, so many of us come into the office, what's the first thing that we do? We look at the number that sits atop our email icon and we go down the rabbit hole of answering emails. And before we know it, it's break time. And then we're in a 10 o'clock meeting and then it's lunchtime. And then we have the insulin crash after lunch and we're basically useless for an hour. And then before we know it, it's time to go home. So how are we able to elevate to think our business to the next level or think our position to the next level? We weren't, right? So we come back, we're going to do that the next day. And sure enough, we start the day in our emails. And and again, it just goes down where before you know it, we're at Friday. And all we've done is think horizontally throughout the whole week. Slowing down allows us to think vertically. You know, think think about a fly smashing its head against a glass window, right? And if it were just to back up for one quick second, it would realize the window right next to it is wide open and it could fly right out. And I think that's really important for people to understand. And, you know, Mike and I actually, you know, when we were stuck one time, we were like, we decided it was because we did not have time to think. So we started scheduling hours for us to, to pour back into ourselves. Because you, if, you, if you just deplete yourself in trying to chase something, you're never going to have anything offer as far as ideas or inspiration for your people. So that, that, like you said, taking your foot off the gas every once in a while benefits people more than you'll ever, ever get by just continuing to just go and, and, and burn the candle at both ends. Yep. Makes perfect sense to me. All right. I want to move into sort of the, well, let's call it the, the more personal side of your life and, and how you think a little less on the business end of things. Why do you believe that Kipling's poem, If, is as powerful as a four-year degree? What is it about that? I just think there's such profound wisdom in it. You know, I think there's a few things in there, in that poem that parallel my life that I've really um, gravitated towards. Like when he talks about losing everything uh, on, on one roll of the dice and building it up, building it back up with worn out tools. I feel like I've had a few of those moments in my life where everything was gone and you don't speak a word of your loss. You just you know, you put your head down and you grind and you get it back and you, 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 you recognize the failure and you move through it. You know, as a, as a pit crew coach, Rob, I have a really unique relationship with failure, right? Like I have to fire guys based on tenths of seconds. So, you know, it's one of the things that has served me well in my life and, and, you know, failure, uh, I truly look at failure as a gift. And I think, you know, again, that going back to the poem, if there's, there's just so many profound life lessons in every layer of that poem. Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing poem for sure. Yeah. What do people often get wrong about you or, you know, your writing or your work or your books or, you know, et cetera? Uh, you know, right off the hop, the thing that people get wrong about me is that I'm a meathead. You know, like I, you know, I fought mm-hmm. in the minors for eight years. So I have, you know, my, my hands look like they've, they've been through a shredder. You know, I have uh, you know, a bunch of scars on my face. Like I'm the last guy that's going to win a handsome contest. But I think people are taken aback sometime when, when they realize where I went to school or what I studied or, you know, how avid a reader I am. And, and I'm, you know, it's again, it's, it's uh, first impressions sometimes aren't always what they seem to be. And I think that's one thing that people get wrong about me. I think one thing people get wrong about NASCAR is it's just these rednecks in the Southeast. It's not. I was, my doors were blown off the first time I went into a race shop and and it had nothing with my dad's occupation. It's these race shops are spotless. They're almost surgical and, uh, you know, NASCAR's big business. Oh, for sure. Billion dollar industry. No question about it. Yep. What is an unusual or an absurd thing 
that you love? Uh, weird, weird question, I know. No, no. I, I think one of the things that is absurd is one thing that just mellows me out is searching Circa and Zillow and looking at old houses. I am a f- history fanatic and uh, I love old properties. Like I just love going to visit them and I'll, I'll walk into them and I'll, you know, try to, you know, picture what went on there and what went on in the fields. And yeah, it's just a strange thing I have. And, uh, you know, a, 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 you know, a, a, I did, it just kind of, that soothes me. And, and I find, uh, there's a piece to it that I just is inexplainable. I love that. That's really interesting. What is a new behavior or a belief that has significantly improved the quality of your life? Something that maybe you're looking at sort of differently now than you have been in the past. Yeah, I think the behavior is bouncing on a trampoline, oddly enough. I think that the 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 thought I think that is changing me the most is that, like I said, kindness wins. You know, I think that kindness and grace advances whatever position you take. Kindness and grace allows you to get there and arrive in a better place than any type of forced march, any type of stepping on someone to get there, any type of compromising your morals to get there. And I really try to incorporate that into everything we do. And, and like I said, I do a lot of this with Mike Metcalf. He's the epitome of, of grace. Interesting. What is one goal that you thought, when I achieve it, everything's going to be great? And then you achieve it, and you were like, well, that really didn't do what I thought it was going to do. It, it was to play in the American Hockey League. And Rob, I swear to you, like I said, I was probably the worst defenseman at Dartmouth, was in and out of the lineup. And I would go to Providence, Rhode Island, you know, every summer, and I would pass by the Providence Civic Center. And that's where the Providence Bruins played. And I would verbalize it every time I pass that arena that I'm going to play there one day. And, and I had no business. I didn't even think I would make pro. And sure enough, five years later, you know, I start out in Texas, go to Greensboro, make my way up to the American Hockey League. And when I made my way up to the American Hockey League, there was only eight games left in that season. And the second to last game of the season was at Providence. And I'm on the ice and I get to play in that game. And it was just a surreal moment. But when I got off the ice, I thought of everything that went into that moment. And I wasn't sure. It was wonderful, but there was a lot I sacrificed to get to that moment. And it took me a minute to, re- to understand if it was, it, was, uh, it was worth everything I'd put into it. Yeah, it's crazy. It, it's crazy because so much of these goals are really just about the journey. Um, we don't well, get that because we're our eyes are on the goal, right? Right, exactly. And you know, one someone I'm a huge fan of is um, is Carol Dweck. You know, and she talks mm-hmm. about uh, y- you know about you know becoming is better than being, right? And you look back to the Kobe Bryant speech when you know here's a guy who all the NBA championships, MVPs, all that stuff. You know, in his final speech, he's talking to his girls about the true successes in the journey, in the being of it, right? And I, you know, we talk all the time to people about like, what's your finish line in life, right? And for so many of us, that's a number in our bank account or a vacation home somewhere or a certain type of car that we drive. But the finish line for all of us is six feet in the ground. So we had better figure out pretty quickly what that finish line needs to be because it needs to come before you're six feet in the ground. And like I said, one of the best things about Dartmouth was, like I said, lifting, getting a peek behind the veil, lifting the the whole, you know, money is happiness myth. And that was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me. Okay. If you could spend one month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? Yosemite National Park without hesitation. Hmm. And Interesting. Why? Uh, I just... I grew up Sunday mornings in a hockey rink, right? So I didn't grow up religiously faithful, but there's something about that park that you just feel insignificant in the universe and and you feel closer to whatever you want to call it, whether it's God or or whatever you believe in. There's just a sense that I get there and it's, you know, you're unplugging from society and you're seeing these spectacular vistas and you're breathing clean air and, you know, sleeping beside streams. And it's just... I used to like the NASCAR season is just so loud and um, you know packed with people that I used I go to Yosemite every year in the middle of the season because we race out in San Francisco just to reset myself 
And the one year that I didn't go, by the end of the season, Rob, I was, uh, you could tell, like there was a, a frenetic energy to me that I just could not dissipate. And one of the only ways I do it is getting in the mountains. And if, if you have not been to that place, that place is spectacular. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely incredible. Oh. If you could only go to one restaurant before you die, where would your last meal be and why? We have a, there's a little fish and chips place in Seattle. And, you know, Seattle's this huge city. And I think it sits like four people. And I get to go home to every second year, I get to go home and see my parents. And we stop at this little fish and chips place. And, you know, the same families run it, you know, their entire life ever since it's been there. And um, I don't know, the food and the story of it. You know, like I said, I'm big into into stories and and history. And I think, uh, yeah, it would be the fish and chips place uh, in Seattle. I think it's called Ivers. Love it. Okay. Are there any positions or opinions in the last few years, or it could be way back, doesn't have to be in the last few years, that you've changed your mind substantially about? You, you just went, you know, I used to think this way. I don't think this way anymore. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things that I have changed on is that one style of coaching or one style of, of leadership touches everyone the same way. You know, I think the days of Lombardi and some of these heavy-handed guys that just threw a blanket over everyone and held everyone to the exact same standard. You know, growing up, I read all those books and thought, okay, yeah, that's how I would coach if I ever got to coach. And I, and I think that's wrong. I think, you know, with the way kids are raised these days, all the different pressures in society, I think coaching, success in coaching is a direct reflection of your emotional intelligence and your ability to connect with people where they're at. And I think that's probably been by far the biggest change I've made. I used to think I could say one thing, it applies to everybody, but it doesn't touch everyone the same way. Yeah, it's very difficult to um, to pull certain tools out of a tool case, a toolbox, because we often want to just, you know, use the same brush for everything. But, you know, as we get older, we start to realize, eh, this guy needs this, that one needs that. And uh, that comes with experience. So that's, uh, that's really cool. There's two other questions I wanted to ask you before we wrap. The first one is, with every new level that you get to in life comes a new devil. What are you personally currently struggling with? And it could be professionally or, or personally. One of my favorite things in my life is sitting on the porch with my wife of our bar and having coffee. And I find that the more you're pulled with time, the more I have to be very intentional about, intentional about protecting that space. And I find that, you know, again, we talk about silence and slowing down, not even just spending time with her, but that silence and that quietness is so important to me that, you know, I think that's one of the biggest challenges is like I said, being very intentional about my time and how it's used and what you say yes to and what I say no to. That is the biggest struggle in the world because every time you say yes to something, you got to say no to something else. Correct. So I love Correct. That. Okay. So we're going to do our rapid fire rounds now. Answer as quickly or as slowly as you would like. It's basically a first thing that comes to mind rounds. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? I would say my emotional intelligence, my, my ability to manage my emotions in really crazy situations, like stuff that presents itself at the track and is just, that is totally unscripted. And you have crew chiefs yelling at you and you have 400 horsepower motors going. So you're screaming at each other and you got to determine whether it's out of anger or it's just out of trying the the ability to communicate. I, I would certainly say managing my emotions. Love that. Okay. What do people never ask you, but you wish they did? I wish they would ask me more about my guys. I, I, Rob, I honestly feel like I work with 26 of the best human beings on this planet. Like I said, they are the only picker that's ever won our version sport of the Walter Payton Award. And, you know, it is, you know, a lot of bosses say it's a privilege to get to go to work with my employees, but I, like, I truly feel that way. And these guys, again, we we go back to kindness, right? And a lot of things, people think kindness and empathy is weakness. And it's not, I have, like I said, I have guys that, you know, fighters and linebackers and guys that would, would hurt people that are the epitome of kindness. And I, I wish, like I said, I wish more people would ask me what these guys are like beyond just being picker guys. I love that. Okay. 
what is the one thing that you personally want to get better at? Meditation. I that's probably a default answer to a lot of your people, but I... No, actually, I, I rarely hear it because most of the people that I interview are super, super, you know, regular meditators. So it's, it's uh, unusual uh, to hear people that are, you know, either just starting out or, or need to get better at it. So tell me, tell me more. My meditation, my intent to meditate is has been in my you know new year's resolutions for the past decade and i just i get up there and i love it because like i said i i understand the importance of slowing down but i meditate in our gym and you know this is the meathead part of me so i'll start meditating and then i'll be like well i'll just grab a quick set of bench or i'll just i'll just do some curls or i'll just i mean just uh it's my inner meathead coming out and what i need to do is is probably separate myself from that space, but it's always been the space where I've tried to meditate. And, you know, I get on runs where I'll go for a month or two and, but it just, it, it, I really started getting better at it when I understood what it, how it changed your brain structure. And I think that's what kind of led me more to it, but I still, I can be lured out of it pretty easily. Yeah, for sure. It's, 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 it is, they, they call it a practice because you are practicing. There's no <laughs> right, question about it. Right. What book have you reread? the most? Well, we talked about Carol Dweck. That's something I think yep. I, is, is pretty dog-eared now. I think Sacred Hoops, I, I have, I've taken that mm. with me most of my life. And it really, again, really helped me manage my emotions early on in my hockey career and into, into NASCAR. And I think there's a ton of valuable lessons in that book. All right. And then the last question that I want to ask you, I told you there was only two, but obviously there were more. Let's change it up a little bit. What one question would you like to ask me? Well, actually I have two, um, if you don't yep. mind. Uh, nope. You know, you're, uh, I was first introduced to you on a car ride to Charleston. My wife is probably Lori Harder's second listener, if, if not the first. And I remember we, I was going to Charleston listening to you and you're a successful guy. And I would like to know what your definition of success is and what thing you think is the most successful thing that you've done in your life. Mm, well, that's a double whammy. Um, for me, success is being able to do what I want, when I want, with whomever I want, as often as I want. That is true freedom and true success for me. And that doesn't mean in a big flashy kind of way. It just means that I want to have options. Yeah. So I love I, I love that um, as success for me. And then the the other part of the question: What has been? Restate that one again. If you had to put your finger on the thing that you are most proud of, the the thing that you're the most successful at, what is that thing? I would say. I don't know if this is the answer that you're looking for, but it would be curiosity. I have an inborn, insatiable, never-ending, relentless, from the moment I wake up till the moment I go to sleep, curiosity. I'm fascinated by everything. I don't care if it's NASCAR or the leaves in my backyard or the birds or I just, I, I can't stop learning and questioning. It is an obsession of mine that I have to, to be honest with you, I have to hold back because when I have dinner, it could be quite annoying to have dinner with me because I will just <laughs> drill you until you're like, oh my God, can I just have a margarita and, and have some Mexican food? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but that, that driver in me has connected me in a, uh, a much deeper, more meaningful way with people because I genuinely am interested in them and their life. And it's not a made up thing. It's not like I'm asking you questions about your life because I'm trying to trick you into being connected with me by having you think that I care about you. I genuinely want to know about everything in your life. Yeah, um, And I think that that has served me through any business pro project or personal thing that I've done or as a dad, but I think it's crossed all platforms. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, Rob, honestly, the reason I remember you on that Lori podcast, uh, Lori Harder podcast was because, you know, you had gone into your background and you talked about, you know, some of your early family stuff. And, and, and my dad, my dad was a cycle breaker and he came from three generations of, uh, you know, his dad, his great grandfather, his grandfather, they were, they were all drunk and, and just um, either left or, or, you know, just did things that were, 
you know, terrible as my dad grew up. And my dad was the first one to break that cycle. And, uh, and I just, it's something I don't think he thinks of, but like, if I look at all the accomplishments in his life, like that should be number one. And I remember that because I think you had a similar situation and yeah. And I think that that should be on your success radar because what that did for your children, you know, and I know what it did. My dad did for me, if I would have grown up, you know, I can't imagine putting myself where I got to without my dad taking me to the rink at 5am and without, and, and for, for those cycle breakers out there, man, it's tough to, it's tough to imagine something that you did for your children that is more successful than that. So I just, I wanted to applaud you on that. And like I said, that's why I remembered you. And when your name, you know, first came up to me, I'm like, I know that name. And that's, that's exactly where I remembered it from. That's awesome, man. You know, we are, we are all on the path and, you know, there's no, there's no chance meeting. It's, it's by no accident that your name um, has come up to me from uh, our mutual friend, Mrs. Purdy, yep. uh, to our now mutual friend, Kyle Depp. Yes, I think is how you say yep. his last name. Um, and uh, a couple of other people too that I'm blanking on right now. So when, you know, when three, four, five people start saying, hey, you got to have this guy on the show, I know that uh, there was a reason and we were meant, uh, we were meant to, to, uh, to connect. So, so this is awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? No, I, you know, the only thing I ask is, is be a light. You know, there's, there's so much hate and so much things that are going on there that, that tear us apart. Let, let's find the things that are different about each other. And instead of underscoring them and letting them divide us, let's be curious about them and bring us together. You know, we're as human beings, we're tribal. We're meant to be together. We're meant to be necessary. Let's, again, we always talk about kindness wins. If, if, if we want to make this place better, we have to find a way to come together. So I just, I implore people to, like you said, like you, Rob, be curious, try to find, you know, let's look at the different lens, see where we can bring this thing together. But um, be a light is all I could say. Man, there's, there's no other truer words than at the recording of this podcast that the world needs than that statement. So that is a mic drop right there. And we're going to end it on that note. Sean, thanks for taking the time. And we will link up um, all of your information in the show notes. Awesome, man. If you ever, you know, NASCAR might not be on your radar. If you or your buddies ever want to come to a race, Rob, please get, a, get in touch with me. And, um, you know, I would love to entertain you on weekend if you, if you ever desire. I'd love it, man. Thanks again. All right, buddy. Have a great day. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live. We'll be right back.